getting the crowd going. Are you kidding me? You are kidding me! Holy smoke! Was there any doubt? Was there any doubt? This is going to be the game. Joel Clutton battling for position. He tips it to the end zone where it's caught by Elijah Jaime at the buzzer to tie the game. Incredible awareness from Clutton, and we've got overtime tonight. Welcome back to Swing Pass. We're here with the second episode with the legendary Cam Brock. We don't have a whole bunch of new news for you except for a confirmation for the 2024 Championship Weekend event. We teased it last week here on Swing Pass. It's been reported on in Ultra World, but news finally made official today. The league's crowning event will be in Salt Lake City, Utah, August 23rd and 24th. For the right of the UFA title this year. Cam, you made it one time back in 2019. You also made it in 2012, but as we were talking in the pre-show kind of uh, uh, warm-up, that, that was sort of a too pre-modern era of this league to really consider a part of the championship weekend fold. But 2019 is very much a part of the modern era. So I was going to ask you, what does it really take to get to this Final Four event to make it to the end of the road and have a chance at a title, you know, coming out as one of the four best teams in the league, your divisional champion? There's obviously a lot of talent, a lot of winning that goes along the way, but in a single elimination playoff format, there's also, I think, a lot of just headiness, sort of intangible and matchup approaches to really consider before you go into every game. What has been your experience with that in your career? Yeah, um, well, one thing that we've seen over the course of uh, the league is uh, getting that one seed is really important. Uh, the one seed really often tends to go to championship weekend. In 2019, we did have the one seed in our division. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things where you have to, you can't really earn your way to championship weekend just by showing up in the playoff start. Because if you really want to get that one seed, which has proven to be invaluable across all pretty much every division almost every year that means you got to start from your first game all the way through the regular season you have to show up every week um and as we know and i know i touched on this several times throughout our first episode together roster consistency is a big thing um and you know those days when you don't have your best roster and you play a tough opponent and you, you drop a game because of it uh, that could be the difference uh, down the line in making it to championship weekend or not. The difference between only needing to win one game in the playoffs to get there versus needing to win two. Um, and that, that's a big deal. You know, that's one more week of needing to game plan for um, a team. That's one more week of potential injury and one more week of wear and tear, regardless if injuries happen or not. It's one more week where people have to travel. It's It's a lot. And that's at the end of a season where you've, you know, maybe already done this for 12 games as an individual. So I can say though, that moment when you like clinch your trip to championship weekend is like, that's a moment I know I'll never forget. Um, it was something we worked toward in Indy and had worked really hard for. And we had slowly built up to that point to get there. And I gotta say um, a trip to Salt Lake city sounds pretty good. That stadium out there is always full of, of fans the backdrop on that stadium too is just gorgeous like yeah. it's one of my favorite probably that in Colorado are my two favorite stadiums to watch when I'm watching from home it just looks beautiful in both those locations um, and both have great fan bases too so I expect that uh, whatever four teams make it out there will have plenty of people there either cheering for or against them as they uh, you know go throughout their quest to win the title. Yeah, those uh, shred heads out in Utah are a pretty serious faction. I remember the New York Empire after their West Coast uh, trip this past season. They were very emphatic about stating their experience being super positive in Zion Bank Stadium. I assume the same thing as you, that whoever kind of graces those grounds from the other three divisions, and if Salt Lake gets to host it, it'll be a pretty raucous event. You know, Utah Ultimate, as we kind of talked about in this show last week, I know I talked about with Daniel when he was on, uh, uh, now ex-host, uh, 
we were talking about just that environment, right? Like Utah as a community, I think has been sort of approaching a moment for what it means to be sort of on the elite tier stage. It's been something that that state's uh, youth college and professional scene in both men's, women's and mixed has been approaching for years and years now. And this sort of championship event, I think could be kind of a crowning achievement, especially if shred make it into the bracket and if they can maybe even pull off a title that would be the second time ever a team has won in front of a home crowd uh going back with 2018 madison obviously when the radicals did it at breeze stevens field it's just you know like you were saying there's a certain kind of electricity and i think salt lake will absolutely bring that i remember talking with evan lepler after he got out there for those uh new york versus shred games during the regular season and he was talking all about how it just it it felt like how professional ultimate should there's a big video board like you said there's a mountain backdrop there's the 2000 plus fans it's just it's a venue and and i think a moment built for a really great event and especially after this last season at tcf stadium it feels like there's going to be a lot of momentum carrying into this new season with Empire looking to extend their reign, that they're obviously on this record-setting 30-game win streak. One more, they set the record alone. Right now, they're tied with the 2013-2014 Toronto Rush. We'll see if that comes. We'll see if your Indie Alley Cats, which have been on this very steady ascent since 2021, not so coincidentally aligned with when you unretired, but... <laughs> You know, they've sort of like come back into the fold. You guys have made this very, I think, uh, aggressive almost improvement over the last couple of years, especially after 2019's run was built on such a solid core of veterans that have sort of been accumulating over your franchise's first few storied seasons. But since the pandemic uh, uh, season, the, the, the no season, I should say, of 2020, the Alley Cats have really, I think, reloaded in the past three years. And you guys feel both very much, obviously, with yourself involved, Nick Hutton, Rick Gross, Levi Jacobs, a lot of very familiar faces. But there's also this sort of new guard of uh, developing players that you guys have on board. Obviously, you have announced already uh, the signings of Seth Gudeman, Luke Conieris as a captain this season, uh, Ben Close, as well as I'm sure you the Alley Cats will be coming forward with a bunch more signing announcements. Uh, you guys will be trying to knock off Minnesota, who made it to championship weekend for the first time last year. Out in the West, we'll, I'm sure, get into much, much more. There's just going to be a melee, I feel like, for the three playoff spots in that division. The South, as we talked about last week on the show, might be the most competitive division in the entire league. There's just intrigue all across the UFA going into 2024, but without there being a whole lot of hot stove news yet, there's been smatterings of signings as we've just alluded to. We want to get into this episode talking about kind of the dark art, the the other side of the disc, so to speak, of the league, and that being defense. There's just, I think, a real lacking of both discussion, stats, and even just, I think, general like vernacular about what we mean when we talk about defense you know i think after the 2023 season there is sort of this vanguard of a new era with the pulling rules and the institution of them that really showed that there's going to be i think more of a defensive meta to the ufa and the pro ultimate game going forward uh it, it just feels like you know kind of tritely going back to what a lot of other sports reference defense wins championships but that just hasn't been the case throughout this league's first decade or so of play if you go back and you even look at the team statistics i think going back to 2014 or something you know the last 10 champions of them like nine or 10 of them have been top three in offensive efficiency i think that that kind of you know again offensive meta is going to be flipped on its head i think that's to do with the, the the new pulling rules. I think that's also to do with defensive strategy developments with the familiarity of the field and the game itself becoming more and more developed without just absolutely sprawling here. 
you and I, I think, are going to try to take a little bit of a tact of structuring what we talk about when we talk about defense. You know, obviously, we have this question of, is defense going to be as important as we think it's going to be? But also, what do we mean when we talk about good defense? Do we just mean low score? Do we mean a defense's ability to convert defensive break opportunities at a high clip? Does it mean forcing an opponent out of their preferred or option A strategy, forcing a star into a suboptimal performance? You know, there's just so many different metrics by which we measure this. We're going to try and kind of roll all that into a, a bigger discussion without getting totally off the rails. But bringing you in, I kind of wanted to break this down into three main ways we think of team schematics. And that's one versus one team sort of structure or play, and then sort of a switch or a hybrid between the two where a team might go between a zone look and a man-on-man a -man approach. And I kind of wanted to give the ball over now to you and let you kind of expound and maybe give some examples about each of those styles. Sure. Um, and for the sake of keeping this as simple as possible, because I mean, like you said, we're, no one's really tried to, to my knowledge, really break this down. Um, and we're going to be trying to do that today. We're, I'm going to pick teams that we kind of focus on as like our, our case study for each one of these types of defenses, right. just because, just to keep things as simple as possible. There are obviously other teams that could probably fit into these categories, but let's start with the good old man-to-man -man defense. Like we're going to, we're going to line up across from you. We're going to pick our matchups and we are just going to try to out athlete you, out quick you, and just like maybe out pressure you, out physical you. And the team that I think most exemplifies this, I mean, there's, there's a couple you could go with, but one that I feel like really tries to lean in on the athleticism is uh, the shred. Like yeah, when I watch absolutely. the shred play, it really is just like, we're going to line up across from you and we are going to try to just be better than you. <laughs> um, another team that definitely can do this and does it to some extent would be like the empire. Like they can just line up across you man to man and just really mess with you though i feel like the empire does do a better job of like sometimes doing some schemey things that they throw in there um but they definitely have the capability i mean when you look at the four people that they throw out if you want to go with your typical you have four people guarding cutters uh or your more cutter like uh people on offense i mean Binyat, britain tan antoine davis john randolph <laughs> i mean like those are four of probably i mean those might be four of the top 10, maybe even four of the top five, you know, best just like straight up person defenders in the league. Um, but Salt Lake, so Salt Lake, if you ever watch them play, it's everything's fast. On offense, they play with a lot of tempo and they want to score quickly and they get in rhythm and a lot of times they do. I mean, sometimes I feel like like you can't, if they're going to receive the pole, you, you don't have time to go to the bathroom. By the time you get back, the point's going to be over. And defensively, they kind of, try to play with that same speed and intensity. Um, they are flying around the field. I, I would venture to guess that no team makes more bids than the D-lines out in Salt Lake. They are constantly throwing their bodies around. They have a lot of very athletic players. Um, it's one of those things, too, where you can't even, like, single a certain guy out on their D-line as being like, oh, that's the athlete that gets the blocks. Because it really feels like any one of them at any point could could be doing that, whether it's Mayanga or Ashton or just anyone. I mean, everyone's flying around the field all the time. And um, this, the thing with this type of defense is it's very plug and play friendly. And in a league where we still have player restrictions in terms of like players not being able to make every game, whether it's work conflicts or whatever else it might be, the ability to just be like, hey, just go out there and play hard man defense and just win your matchup defensively allows you to be able to switch pieces in and out so much more easily than when you're running a scheme. Um, so in terms of like what's what's friendly to your team, especially if you have a team that's going to be having their lineups fluctuate week to week, this is the style that's going to be the most friendly for that because you don't have to really know what's going on. You just got to go out there and play ultimate. You just got to go out there almost like you're playing pickup. You just got to go win your matchup individually. And that's all you're being asked to do. So um, 
I just wanted to, to yeah. add to that. It, it's a perfect strategy for a team that lost most of its defensive starting rotation going into 2023. It was one of the reasons mm-hmm. why I think we impugned maybe their success before the season was that they lost a handful of their top block artists from their inaugural 2022 shred season. And yet mm-hmm. they just reloaded and it looked no different from the year prior. In fact, it looked a little bit better because they were more efficient in their counterattack off of turns. Chad Jorgensen still leading that charge, but was so much more efficient with the disc. It just kind of came from everywhere. And to your point, it's with their ability to just sort of find, develop, and then plug in these athletes who just take over. I mean, Everett Saunders, he mm-hmm. might have been the rookie of the year through the first half of the season before he intercepted the uh, the game winner against Colorado in week eight and then went on a mission trip for a couple of years. It's just their ability to kind of like unearth these block getters from everywhere. I know I've talked with other coaches in the league. They're they're just envious of it because it seems like they're just brimming with all this athleticism that can provide pressure like a NFL blitz does, you know, it's just, (laughs) it's, it kind of like rattles opposing offenses. It seems like when they get these like almost layout trains going, I mean, I've seen sequences, you know, you talk about just their ability to sort of launch from anywhere. There's been these sequences with shreds defensive play where it's like, back to back to back layout attempts and they might not get it the first two times but on the third one they do and it's just it's so much i think to deal with as as a mental approach as an offense too yeah that um knowing that you could get layout d to any moment because your defender is just constantly willing to put their body on the line for the disc it's like it it can wear on offenses and like for some cutters like that can become very I mean, you can just get so anxious every time the disc is in the air. Um, and it's also one of those things, where, like, as it gets later in the game and, you know, people tend to make those mental errors, like maybe slowing up before they get to a disc. Like, I feel like I see Salt Lake's defense really turn up, like, later in the game because they're still just, I mean, they are just like a, like a, what, a horse with a carrot out in front of them constantly the whole game. Like, they're just chasing it the whole time. And it's just like, they don't slow down. They, they're just going full bore the whole time. And it's it's really fun to watch. It can also, the, the thing about this strategy defensively is it does leave you very vulnerable um, because you're not playing this team style of defense, um, and especially if you are a very over, almost overly aggressive team. The thing that can really bite you is when you do guess wrong, when you're trying to beat that offensive player under and they do change directions on you and go deep, for instance, because you're not playing this more team-oriented style of defense, the help's not there. Um, you're now in a very disadvantageous situation. And I did see Salt Lake get taken advantage of in those areas several times throughout the year, especially out in the West where they really like to huck the disc. Um, if you look at the huck numbers, um, I, I looked at them earlier today. I think it was four of the top 10 teams in the league or in the West. Um, Sounds about right. Terms- yeah, but I mean, they they throw, they like to throw the deep ball out there, and you know that that can leave you very susceptible in that area um, when you're not playing this style of defense. It's a little more team oriented, a little more people watching each for each other's backs. And um, but the flip side of that is that aggressiveness does wear down opponents, especially if you're playing an opponent that just can't match you athletically with their offensive line, and very few can match up with with a with a team as athletic as the shred. So um, obviously it led to great success for them this year. They had an amazing season. They lost two games to the team who didn't lose any games. And other than that, other than that they uh, were perfect. So um, it's, it's hard to ding them too much. They did have a couple of close calls here and there. Uh, I remember a game with Oakland that was a, a little close, actually in Salt Lake City for a long time, which I thought had upset written all over it. But um, I'll definitely be curious to see if they can run it back and be as dominant this coming year. But I have a feeling they're going to get a little bit more competition from Colorado this year than they did in 2023. Well, and you could just see sometimes I think the limitations of that defensive strategy, even against Colorado and LA this past season. I mean, when LA started to get some of its matriculation and rhythm upfield, they would find a lot of 
one-on-one continuation looks to a streaking Everest Shapiro, to a streaking Sean McDougal, when they could kind of get out of some of the, you know, I think some of the ways in which the shred are good is that they force some of these coverage sacks with their layout attempts where they get a, a upper stall count throw attempt where it's kind of a last option and they can get that you know bid attempt on a disc it's not an early stall count it's not something that's you know too risky it's kind of a final straw almost coverage sack style turnover generated and when they're not in that situation when it is a lower stall count and the opposing offense can get the disc moving you see more opportunities i remember in the first half of the second matchup against the Summit. The Summit were having tremendous success early attacking deep. You know, Alex Atkins, Calvin Stoughton, Quinn Finer, they were dialing it in. And going back to their matchups in 2022, that was also where the Summit really exposed the Shred. The Shred wanted to play up-tempo. They wanted to kind of try to take the disc away in space. And the Summit said, come get it. And they racked up a bunch of scores. And I think all three of their meetings against the shred in that season, obviously shred had a much more success swept the season series in 2023, but there were still some signs that if Colorado's offense weren't stumbling as it did throughout the season this past year, that maybe the shred could be exposed if somebody just kind of had a little bit more discipline against them. And obviously New York did that in both of their matchups. I felt like the championship game the off the shred offense had so many mistakes early that we didn't really get a chance to see a true matchup of how their defense would face down the empire offense. But we're getting a little bit into the weeds. I wanted to get into the next kind of uh, strategic style that we had outlined. And that was sort of team defense or help defense, mm-hmm. not quite a zone not quite matchup. I think what we really were trying to typify in developing this one was a communication and I think almost an amount of reps that you need as a defensive unit. And I'll, I'll let you kind of give the example because it's a team that you face two to three times every single season, and that is the Minnesota Windchill. Yeah, and when you look at the Minnesota Windchill too, like they are a team um, that finished despite playing one less game um, than like the empire and the shred actually forced more turnovers uh, total throughout the season. Um, The thing that Minnesota does, and uh, there are some other teams that do this too is, um, and this is like the thing you can do in, in the UFA that you can't necessarily do in other forms of ultimate where you're playing multiple games in a day or over the course of a weekend is like the game planning specifically for an opponent and I think Minnesota does this about as any as well as anyone across the league. They spend so much time keying in on what they need to do against this team specifically to slow stuff down. And a lot of their defensive strategy is is based around trying to stop the flow of the offense from ever really starting. So mm-hmm. whereas with the shred, with the the shred style of like we're just going to match up and be man to man, like there is no really pole play breaker. It's very much. You know, if we break your pole play, it's just because our man-to-man matchup beat your person and they weren't able to get open. But what Minnesota does so well is that they come up with a scheme that will just muck up the backfield. And you saw it in the game, in their semifinal game against the Shred. The semifinal against the Shred? Yeah. They want to get out and run. Like, they want to get out and get the disc moving quickly. And they want to hit those continuation cuts. And they just want the... Like everyone's touching the disc and isn't holding it for longer than like two to three stalls. And against Minnesota, that is so difficult because what they what they do is they they muck up the backfield with some double team looks and upfield uh, where all the cutting space is. They do a lot of they'll do bracketing where they have someone in the underspace or they'll have multiple people in the underspace and multiple people in the deep space. One thing, probably the most well-known person on their D-line is Dylan DeClerc, um, who is not known only for the blocks that he gets, but then often being the person catching the goal uh, to convert the break. And one of the reasons he's so good at this is because they kind of set up the defensive system to allow him to do this. So he often does, if they are, in, they're usually kind of man-to-man uh, in the cutting space, even if they're being a little kind of, almost zone-like in the handler space. 
And what they'll do is that, like they almost never put him on who they perceive to be the top matchup on the other team or even the second best matchup. A lot of times what they do is they'll put him on the third or fourth matchup that they're worried about downfield. Someone who maybe they're not as worried about going deep as much so that he can just hang out and kind of look for opportunities to poach off and get these unders. And the thing that that really allows him to do too, that makes him so successful in converting those into scores is when you poach off and go get the disc in another place, not only are you getting the disc for your team, but the person who was likely going to guard you on a turnover is now nowhere near you because you have poached off into another space. So now you are with momentum going towards the, the end zone you want to score and getting the D, moving the disc, and now there is no one guarding you as you take off. And Dylan DeClerc is as good as anyone in the league at taking advantage of that. Um, and they kind of set him up for success with that, with the way they do this team style of defense where they are mucking everything up. So he doesn't really have to worry about his guy doing something super important somewhere else in the field because to get it to his guy, it's going to be out of rhythm. It's going to be later than the offense wants it to be. And by the time the disc gets there, Dylan's going to be able to make up that space and at least be in, in, in position to affect the throw. So that's not going to be something that's wide open. And if you go watch a Minnesota game, you're going to see this over and over again. Just they're mucking up the handler space and you can't always see what's going on upfield, but it doesn't really matter because they can't get it there because there's just too much, too many guys in spaces where we want to throw the disc and we can't get it there. And it's so annoying. It's so annoying. And I hate it. Um, we found ways, I think, to be successful against it in our playoff game and just didn't execute enough. But, man, they really make you have to think about how you want to attack their defense. You can't just go out with your normal strategy. It's funny, too, because you in Indy in general, I think, spent so many years working and developing against the Madison zone defense. And the Minnesota sort of help, blob, matchup, whatever you want to call it, is similar in a sense of how it kind of wants to force the disc to the edges of the field, but it represents such like a nuanced and different presentation from what you guys, I think have sort of unlocked and figured out in Madison's defensive strategies. Like I think when the alley cats go up against the radicals, the past couple of seasons, their offensive successes have been much more visible than when you guys match up against this Minnesota sort of team defense style. It just, gums up your particular gears and machinations in a way and most teams again this happened against salt lake who was probably the top performing offensive unit in the league this past year by offensive metrics like offensive efficiency team completion percentage etc and and they they just have an ability to to what you were saying i think reshape the field and, and give you enough to think about that you don't know where the pressure is going to come from. Like a comparison that I was kind of trying to do with some of these styles was bring in sort of NFL elements and like how they scheme up defenses. And one that kind of came up with Minnesota is uh, Steve Spagnuolo, who is the, I just butchered that pronunciation. I'm pretty <laughs> sure but the chief's defensive coordinator, because he is one of those kind of uh, architects who loves to mask a lot of his coverages he has a lot of uh, intricate or, or kind of almost cute defensive blitz packages. And I see that all the time in Minnesota and particularly like what you were talking about with Brandon Mattis or just the way in which I think they're very versatile in the way that they allow their, their matchups to switch coverages, even midpoint, depending on how they communicate or where they're on the field or what the particular bracket they're working in is. And I just think that that sort of amorphous and evolving defensive set is very unique. And like you say, just really just uh, it, it clouds everything in that midfield that I think for a lot of other offenses against opposing defenses can be pretty easy to work through, you know, to really find the space on a UFA field can be pretty easy task at times for the right throwers. And so to, have those lanes taken away and this sort of shift the 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 angle of the the field and the attack that you're seeing i think minnesota does really really well and i think another team obviously that does this really well too that doesn't play a particular i think style and likes to match up is new york you know mm -hmm. they love to bracket they love to 
kind of plant yacht in the back as a safety, allow the Drosts to roam as sort of those midfield linebackers and similar to clerk roles where they're just kind of allowed to attack a little bit more in the middle of the field, knowing that they have that canopy help in the back, knowing that they have a John Randolph, a Breton Tan, an Antoine hunting around for any sort of loose discs or if they miss an assignment going for, you know, a blitz package or something, there's just a lot of, I think, abilities to recover in that unit. And Minnesota reminds me of the same way. Yeah. And I think one thing, like you, it's not even like you can just like get the, bounce the disc outside and then like beat them deep with a hook. They they had the third lowest completion percentage on hucks from their opponents. They only gave up 55% of their hucks. Uh, being completed so I mean even if you shoot it deep you're looking at basically a coin flip if, it, <laughs> if you're going to complete it I will say one thing that this team style defense really thrives in is if there is some windy conditions when there is a really calm day this more team style is a little can be a little easier to deal with because that eighth defender of the wind isn't there and it's one of the reasons Minnesota is so successful in their home games on their home field oh, man, because that stadium stadium <laughs> always windy it's oh, now yeah. our playoff game this past year um was it was funny because I was like it's not that wind it's really not that windy but I was like there's still a wind here but just like for seafoam stadium it, it was nothing um yeah. but it was definitely a wind that could affect throws um going one way or the other and that's the thing uh, when like when we played them indoors last year, um, that was a fairly high scoring game. I mean, I think the final score was like 23 to 21 or something like that. But when you're up there, like games don't get up into the 20s usually, at least not with both teams scoring 20. So it is something that's definitely easier to deal with um, when you're outside. One other thing you'll notice with the Minnesota defense is they will let you dump the disc freely. They don't care. Um, they definitely have this like attitude of like as we talked kind of in the pre-show like handler defense is really tricky and like you're you're typically not going to get a lot of d's in the handler space and they kind of are just like you're not going to get d's in the handler space i think there's actually a metric out there that shows that like disc uh dump throws or lateral throws in that in that space are completed at like a 98 and a half percent clip across the league so it's like <laughs> When you think about it like that, why would you try to expend so much energy actually getting a block back there? Because the odds are so low for how much energy you have to expend to try to do it. So they literally will just let you continuously dump the disc. They do not care. You just call that like the, is that like the Gucho Hannes metric or the A-Roy metric or something like that? Just like the, the <laughs> Might as well be the Gucho Hannes metric, right? <laughs> taking those handoff passes and just facilitating it over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> So it's just like, they, but if you watch them, they really will just like let you move the disc backwards because they know that they can, it doesn't matter if, if you can't move it laterally enough, which is really hard to do against them, particularly in any windy conditions, then it doesn't really matter if you move backwards because you're not going to gain an advantage anywhere else very easily, at least. Um, well, and it's but, really interesting that you bring so. that up because I thought one of the things that they neutralized in Salt Lake's offense in the semifinals was that ratchet throw that the shred live off of like mm -hmm. you talk about sort of the up-tempo engine of the shred offense one of the ways in which they really get that going is they love to kind of work a rail and then ratchet to the other rail and then isolate for a continuation look they are maybe the best team in the league it's sort of doing that almost tic-tac-toe movement up the field and Minnesota just eliminated it. They said, mm -hmm. you can take that first centering throw, but you're not going to get the sort of like bounce pass to the rail on the other side. Mm -hmm. We're going to anticipate that. We're going to have someone hunting down that rail. You get to stick in the middle of the field and you can play dump behind as much as you want. But that McKay Jorgensen or Luke Jorgensen, Jorgensen somewhere uh, throw to get it over to Kerr and let him shoot to Jay Stunabile. That's going to be open twice, maybe. You've got to hit it on the mark each time. Otherwise, we're taking away from you. And like you said to their to the point about Minnesota's Huck defense, they might be the best team at help defense. They might be the best team at providing that second defender over the top, just putting mm -hmm. an additional set of arms and a body there to make it problematic to reel in the catch. And they have a lot of long defenders, too. So yeah. You you throw that into the mix on top of everything else. Uh, the you know you can't can't do anything about length. I mean, it's just there, and they they do. 
while they do have a couple of guys who maybe aren't as tall, they're typically closer to where the disc is and they have plenty of, you know, six foot plus guys throwing up, you know, to throw out there on defense that you're never really very often in a matchup where you have like a height advantage at all. So, um, it, I mean, they've, they've really improved in that area over the course. I mean, the past few years, they've just, their defense has really shown through and, um, that team style of defense has been the big reason for it. They just, they've had so many people who are coming back every year too, that it makes it very easy to continue to implement that. And when you're only having to work in a few new guys every year, instead of, you know, a whole new line of seven people, it just, you can just build on that and you can just see like, you know, they had a couple of new guys last year and Cameron Lacey, they, Ian McCoskey came right and in Bergen. and excelled. Yeah. And they just, be, they, when you have so many people around you who are so comfortable in it, it just makes it easier. The learning curve is just so much easier for, for new people coming in. So, um, but you know what, let's transition into our last. I was going to um, say, I just uh, wanted to say, like you mentioned Berglund, we didn't even get into the pulling technique and how oh, Minnesota's yeah. field positioning really set up so much of what they're successful at. You know, we talk mm-hmm. about them allowing dump passes, swing passes. That's made easier when you're pinning opposing offenses in the shadow of their own goalpost, basically every single drive and just making those first couple of throws so perilous in the middle of Callahan country as Minnesota's pullers, Berglund and Cameron Lacey did so many times this past season. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you have a good puller, I mean, it's, it's an art now, right? Like you, you almost need to like recruit somebody just to do that. Like, hide them on defense if you have to, but if you can get one or two D's out of just the poll, I mean, putting that player in the field can be worth it. I've got an idea. You could be New York and you could convert a two-time MVP into your defensive specialist and puller. Done. Everyone yeah. just go do that now. Yeah. Just get a, just get a two-time reigning MVP and convert them over to D-line. Just turn them into a yeah. Where's Bo Kittredge? Bo, come on. <laughs> Bo couldn't pull. That's one thing Bo did not know. I'll, I'll tell you that. Uh, yeah, so we we have the third and final uh, sort of strategy. We're already 40 minutes in. This, this really is just the Pandora's <laughs> box of topics. I mean, I should just throw up like a screenshot of the doc you and I nerded out on and made in advance. It's going on three pages. Which we'll get to this too. We haven't even touched on some of the doc stuff yet. Oh, we're not, we're not going to get to it this episode. We'll have to pull it up in some other one. <laughs> For the third sort of strategy we wanted to get to was obviously like a dual or a switch or a hybrid sort of strategy between uh, matchup defense, team defense, and also zone looks. And the team that we felt best represented that in the current landscape was Atlanta. Obviously, Mm -hmm. Atlanta, I think, has kind of taken over the mantle of the zone look over from Madison. Madison skewed a little bit more into matchup these past couple of seasons as they go through their redevelopment, but Atlanta still uses a lot of zone. They have kind of a specific set of players that they like to rotate in for those zone looks that look a little bit different from their matchup looks. But that is to say they like to rotate between these two schemes as a way to just sort of throw variants at opposing offenses, give them something different to look at and never let them settle in. And I'll kind of let you take it over from there. I mean, you've played this Atlanta team each of the past two seasons. And Mm -hmm. I think that they've sort of shown you guys, uh, you know, for you guys being a very disciplined offense, have shown kind of the the flex that they can do in both of those schematics. Well, and I have a lot of experience with this because Madison for years, it was every other point, you know, they would switch. It would be point of man, point of zone, point of man, point of zone. And the thing with this type of strategy Honestly, I don't think the zone is actually that difficult to deal with. I mean, we did not do a good job this past year in our first game doing it. But if you go back to our game in 2022, when we played against them, we basically ran their zone off the field. But that's because we had years of experience playing against the Madison zone. And we went there and we're like, oh, we've seen this before. Um, The thing that does though is it just doesn't allow you to get into a rhythm. The funny thing about when this used to happen with Madison is we we would actually do re- really well against their zone, but then when we had to go back to playing against their man, even though their man defense clearly wasn't like their top defense, if you look throughout like the rest of their games, against us specifically, we would tear up their zone and then we would be like, oh, now we have to like cut it full speed and like we have to like do real ultimate things. And we, we struggled with that more 
And even within that system, they were very help oriented. And it's actually very similar to what we saw from Atlanta this year. So what we noticed with Atlanta this year is they would run their zone, which is like their, I'm just going to call a spade a spade here, their less athletic line of the two. It has less speed on it. It has less overall athleticism. It does have a lot of length and it has a lot of cohesion, but it is not the line. Like when they have to go into man after we kind of break through their zone at that point, it's kind of like everyone, you know, line up at the buffet table and, you know, get, get what, get all the fixings. I mean, we can all just go and beat our matchup at this point, but the constant having to switch back and forth does mess with your rhythm offensively. Um, and the thing that we noticed on their D line, which also was kind of emblematic of what Madison used to do is their D line. It, they do have the ability to, they have so many athletes out there. They do have the ability to play really hard man, but they also would do some poach looks so we were running a vert stack and, you know, typically the middle of a vert stack, for instance, isn't super active. And what they would start doing is whoever was in the, in the middle would go off and basically play kind of that Dylan DeClerc role or like that KPS role where they're just hunting for D's or maybe hunt, may, maybe going over and double teaming the disc after it's thrown up field. And that little wrinkle was really good from them and caused a lot of like panic and anxiety uh, for our offense. So you, you, you could just see it happening where we get it over and all of a sudden a double team's coming out of nowhere. Typically you're used to the double team coming from where the disc is thrown from. If a, if a handler is clearing slowly or maybe hanging back, that's a great time to go double team. That's kind of like what I teach people when they come in and they're new to the league. Like when's a good time to double team. If your guy just threw the disc and they aren't running up the field, you, you can just go double team, but they were doing it from the middle of the stack. So then they still have the pressure on the backfield too, which made it more difficult than your typical double teams. Um, and they have guys like Justin Burnett out there who, if he had played, let's be real. If he had played all 12 games last year, would have led the league in D's. He, he was incredible last year. he, had that just wild D on Alex Davis uh, where it looked like he left the stratosphere. They have guys like that out there. Um, Brett Holzmeyer, who crosses over for them and plays big man in that zone. I mean, if there's a person you don't want to have to go up against in a jump ball situation, me having done it twice in the last two seasons, <laughs> being probably five inches shorter than him, it's it's not a fun place to be. It's not a matchup you want to try to test. He's the size of a refrigerator, man. Like he is a large human and mobile. Yeah. So it's like they have the athletes on like to play this incredibly like effective man defense with these like little poaches out of the stack. And then they have this zone that's really just meant to make you have to slow down and be efficient and make make more throws and you you just have trouble kind of getting into a rhythm sometimes like they ran they basically ran the south last year i know they didn't end up winning their playoff game but they clearly looked like the best team in the south last year and one of the big strengths of theirs was that defense and um, being able to make offenses uncomfortable by having to constantly adjust to going back and forth between the two styles. So um, I've seen it since 2013, basically with Madison, like they've been doing this and it was effective for them and they won a title in 2018 off the back of doing that. So um, also with some incredible offensive efficiency, of course, but yeah, I mean, that defense is what Madison was known for basically forever uh until recently so no i mean that's that's some of the best analysis we'll ever have on this show so all i'll say is that i hope it continues going forward but i just wanted to say also too that it's interesting that in all this kind of breaking down styles we don't bring up new york who just kind of had maybe the best historical all-around season on defense given the level of opponents that they faced given the kind of I think restrictions that they had given their last two championship weekend performances where they've just been lights out against the competition. Uh, you know, they're four and Oh, I think their average margin of victory is somewhere near seven goals. And that's against the top competition this league has to offer. And yet there isn't really a sense of their strategy. I think that we talk about, you know, again, it kind of gets back to this, 
dark age sort of place that we exist in when we talk about defense. We can talk about John Randolph and what he provides as sort of the cyborg in one-on-one situations and this ability to exist both as a lockdown coverage artist and handler spaces and this sort of open field athlete who can just take away space. I mean, obviously they've got Ben Yacht, who has now evolved into one of the best defenders in the league, has always been phenomenal at giving blocks at six foot six and being the playmaker that he is. But you just watch the way that he's playing in coverage right now, especially in the back half of 2023. He's becoming maybe the best big defender in the entire league. I mean, he's got the pedigree to understand where the the best places an offensive player wants to go to i mean he set a receiving yardage record in the freaking east division title game this past year but then he sort of flips that knowledge over to know exactly how to cut off the angles on deep hucks there's been a series of highlights where he's just sort of running an open space quicker than his matchup and swatting the disc away on a dead run uh he's evolving obviously they have I haven't even got to the defensive player of the year this past year and Antoine Davis, who had a series in the back half of the year of some of the maybe best matchup defensive play against all-star level offensive competition for several straight games, or he just made them all have off nights. One of the best defensive runs we've ever seen in this league. I mean, there's so many different different. We, you, you talk about Ben Katz, who might be the most intellectual defender that this uh, league has ever seen. The ability for him to generate blocks in the poach lanes, on handler defense, as somebody who stands sub 5'7", almost. Uh, they have Marquez Brownlee. The, it just goes on and on. They have the, the Dross brothers, number one and number two all time in takeaways. And yet, they don't play a particular style. They, they, they play a lot of matchup. They play kind of what we were describing with Minnesota kind of aspect of team defense. But what they've gotten really good at too is situational ultimate. They know exactly mm-hmm. when they want to do a roller pull and set up a trap double team to start an opposing drive. They know exactly what they want to do in red zone sets and the kind of looks that they're looking to take away. They know exactly how they kind of want to put certain personnel into certain position to succeed. I mean, we all knew what was going to happen with Bretton Tan when he got added to that roster. And yet watching him just be unleashed as the kind of Rottweiler defender he can be is, I think, a credit to New York system and its ability to just plug and play. Obviously, that's made more effortless by the kinds of talent that they put on their lineups. But it's also, I think, a credit to how they just play as a system. You know, there there isn't... There aren't any air bubbles against the Empire right now defensively. There, There isn't examples of a team really taking advantage of them the past one and a half seasons as far as what they do systematically. And so, it, it, again, we're, we're just barely brushing the, the topmost aspect of the surface of discussing this stuff. And we're, what, 40 minutes into this episode already? <laughs> Yeah, the it's so hard with New York too because like you, the thing is it, it's like really hard to analyze a team's defense first off when they have the most talented defensive players like top you know top to bottom if you had to take a a seven defensive line from any team in the league I mean you're taking the Empire's top seven defenders um, and it's it's not even close <laughs> um, some numbers to kind of back this up by the way if you go off so I actually started digging into this earlier today of like not just how many turnovers are forced, but how many blocks are teams generating? Because they're, um, you know, sometimes we just throw the disc away as ultimate players. It happens, a disc gets thrown out of bounds, or maybe a drop, or we turf a disc, whatever. We just miss our mark. And no, there's no D associated with that, right? And in a lot of those cases, while some of them may be forced by good defense, a lot of those come down to execution errors, whether it's on the thrower or on the catcher. So I, I decided I wanted to look at like what percentage of teams turnovers they force are actually them getting blocks. And lo and behold, the team that has the highest percentage of their turnovers being blocks that they actually force is the New York Empire. 59% of all turnovers they force are blocks. Uh, for To correlate that a little bit, the Soul actually had the most turnovers forced last year. But only 46% of them were blocks. 
that's a full 13% lower that like that means that they really were relying for most of their turnovers on the other team's ineptitude honestly like they played a lot of and we know they played a lot of games against Dallas and Houston who both struggled offensively to convert and threw the disc a lot away uh, or away a lot um, but when you looked at the two teams who were forcing the most turnovers via getting a block it was Salt Lake and New York and who did we say were the two best teams all year Salt Lake and New York who were the two best offenses also Salt Lake and New York uh, the, I mean so when we're looking at you know our conversation all the way back to the beginning of the podcast about what does it take to make the championship we can you can no longer just be the top offense when you know if you look at like 2019 for instance when we made championship weekend for the most part i don't remember exactly the offensive efficiency ratings of every team that made it that year but we were basically four of the top probably six offenses in the league in terms of hold percentage or or, or some other offensive metrics that proved that we were like the top offensive performing teams throughout the season and while that's important, we saw Minnesota make it to championship weekend. They were definitely not one of the top of offensive teams this season um, by any metrics, really. I, they were very middle of the pack. I mean, they were in the upper half of the league, but they were not barnstorm or, you know, they were not knocking down anyone with their huge offensive performances for the most part. They got there on defense. The soul, it's hard to judge because you really like, because of their heavy schedule playing games solely in Texas. And they did play some weird weather games as well. Some very windy games down there. I remember just some of them that looked just miserable to try to complete passes in, but they weren't forcing as many, as many blocks and that showed up at championship weekend. They, they definitely had a rough game against New York to be fair. So did Salt Lake in the championship game, but uh, defense really seemed to be what got teams there last year. Uh, it, while the offense obviously needs to pull through, and while New York and Salt Lake were two very talented offensive teams, we saw defense kind of win out. Um, even looking at a team like the DC Breeze, who obviously they have this very efficient offense where they complete a lot of passes and they're kind of known for their offense, but defensively they're super strong and they have guys all over the place. You brought up Alexander Fall, who like, he only had seven blocks, but there's no way you're not telling me well, he's not one of the top defenders in the league. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, he was on my all defense roster. I mean, I thought what he provided on the kinds of matchups that he had and, and this sort of, so this gets into a whole nother probably deservedly episode on sure. what is a freaking block and what does a block mean? You know, both mm -hmm. individually and as a team said, I thought, your pull of sort of blocks as a percentage of overall turnovers is a more erudite thing of what I'm trying to get at of like, what are, what is a valuable block? Cause I think a lot of times there can be, you know, sort of a team or a system force block versus an individually generated takeaway. Alexander yeah. falls an example of a kind of player who finished outside of the top 100 block getters in the 2023 season he only had seven blocks in the entire year despite starting I think 12 or 13 games for the breeze and yet I think a full half of those if not more were on league top 10 highlight reels I mean the kinds of blocks he was getting were just phenomenal and I think provided a kind of uh, uh, explosiveness to their defensive pressure that can't be understated and yet it's hard to really talk about him in terms of stats or, or quantity metrics because again, he's in, he's in the middle ground of the league as far as overall generated takeaways, but it isn't to say anything of his coverage abilities or what he provides a breezes defensive unit. It's just an aspect of, we only have really one metric as far as evaluating what a defensive player provides, which is takeaways. It's like, if you only could evaluate line play in the NFL on sacks or something, it's just, there isn't really a whole bunch of uh, numbers here to really explain what we're trying to get at. I think with some of these players and I think blocks in particular, it's just, it, it can be a very empty calorie stat column for at times, you know, it, it, and it's weird too, because there's an, there's an obvious correlation. I mean, it, on the flip side of that, you look at the top end of the block leaders this past year and it's, Lucas Ambrose, Justin Burnett, Dylan DeClerc, Brett Hallsmeyer, like 
Pau Weinberg. Like these are really elite defenders. And yet at the same time, there are just these, these gaps or these holes in what the statistic tells that I think are really hard to look past with a defender like Alexander Fall or even a Cody Spicer who won Defensive Player of the Year in 2022 with, you know, un-eye-popping block numbers. I think he finished the year with 14. But you watch who he's marking up with. You watch what he did to Jordan Kerr in their midseason matchups. You watch how he handled Pavel Giannis even in the semifinals as the rest of Colorado maybe didn't have its greatest game. Like, he is undoubtedly the best player on the defensive side of the disc for that season. And so... <laughs> I digress. We could we could get so, into a whole another episode on on what what is a yeah. freaking block like blocks um, blocks to me are like RBIs in baseball, man. I don't know what it means. Like it's just they, there's so many other team factors that go into producing that stat outside of just the simple counting metric. So I know we we don't want to get too much further into this one. We've already spent quite a time, but I want to just talk about something we talked before, kind of in the pre-show. We've alluded to it a couple of times. Is there this transformation taking place where we're no longer just looking at O-line, like hold percentages or, or offensive line conversion percentages? 2019, the three out of the four divisions, the top team in offensive line conversion percentage represented their division. Growlers were number one in the league. Empire were number two in the league. Alley Cats were number four in the league. Breeze were number three. Obviously, they lost to the Empire. You go to 2021, Union, Flyers, Empire, top three. And those are three of your four championship weekend teams right there. You go to 2022, just last year, Empire, Flyers are one, two, Union's four, um, and Colorado was five, which was the best in their division. So literally the best offensive line conversion percentage from each division went. 2023, the highest correlative stat to who made the championship weekend break percentage, not offensive line conversion percentage. Um, Soul number one, Empire number two, Windchill number three, and Shred number seven overall in the league. Um, offensive line conversion percentage, um, Shred one, Empire four. Then you got to go down to the bottom half of the league to find the Windchill and the Soul. Um, so that is a big big step away from what we've seen over the last few years. Is this a one-off season or is this a trend we're starting to see? Being somebody who has literally seen every, you know, phase of this league from the field perspective, it does feel to me like this is a shift that we are going to see continue into the next year. Obviously the teams who do it best and who are going to represent, you know, the two teams at, and the championship game are probably going to be teams that are ranked very highly in both, as we saw with the shred and um, the empire, although the wind show were oh so close as, as we've all, as we all saw, they were a Joel Clutton hand away from uh, going to the championship game. And, yeah. and you know, it's defense. And we saw that game was controlled by the defense. It was not a shootout, which is what the shred would have wanted. It was controlled by the, slow muck it up tempo that Minnesota wanted to play by. And the empire games were the same way. Like they were controlled by the empire's defense. Um, well, and the, I really the do think we're seeing a eliminated, The empire just eliminated the competition, basically starting each game, I think up five, one, seven, one, something like that. I think both against Austin and Salt Lake. And, and think, that was uh, Austin that. got out to the hot start, right? Didn't they get up to like a three, one lead oh, or something? No, they but, went up two. They, I think they went up two, one. Maybe two one, and then it was just uh, but then it was over. It was over. It was it was was a very short lived. I think I remember I was like cutting the highlight for Austin because it was like, oh my gosh, they take an early lead, and then it was just by the time I had posted that, New York had just seized everything back the opposite way. Yeah, um, I, I do anticipate this to continue though. I think just as as teams get more. As the talent level rises, that means that teams get deeper, which means that those people they're throwing out on D lines aren't just the other guys who made the roster. The guys, the people who make these D lines now, they are legitimately very good players, and that has been a shift as the league's gotten, um, as the league has gone through the years. 
the, the, t- the talent level has just steadily risen. And, and more importantly, it's been the bottom part. Like it's the rising tide uh, that, that brings the whole bottom of the league up. Um, and I expect this to continue for that reason, because the talent is so high across the board. Now you're not just looking at a team's top seven. You're looking deeper into their roster to see these talented players. I, I think defenses are going to continue to have a bigger impact on who wins games. Um, which is why yeah, like when we showed up to Alley Cats tryouts last week, they were like, you're going to make this roster by showing us you can get blocks because like, that's what teams need. Teams need block getters, guys who can actually generate a D. Um, we're going to do some team stuff to try to like, you know, create some Ds as a team, but like you can't put a price on a person like a Nick Hutton, who we've had for years, who once or twice a game is just going to generate a D on his own. Um, William well, Wettengel, who we had last year too, I, like who was I able to like do that. You could feel it in the relief last year with Madison and missing Kevin Pettit scaling. You know, they didn't have that ability last yep. year and they had to switch Sterling Kanaki over to offense too, losing ostensibly their two top block getters outside of Andrew Meshnick, who continues to somehow get double digit blocks into his late 30s now in his career. He's starting to catch up to you as far as just like elder statesmen in the league. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it, 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 to your point, it, it's just this this value of block getting cannot be understated. It, it just gets back into the whole quagmire of then what is a block even? You know, again, like it is super important. You do need, you know, I, I thought one of the, the best developed players that you guys have had is Seth Gudeman on the back end of your defensive rotation. He, he was fantastic he earning blocks for you guys last year. I think he finished with, 16 or 17 for you guys second on the team I believe mm-hmm. and and kind of overtook I think Hutton's spot as a as a more prime block hitter alongside William Wettengale the the rookie sensation for you guys but uh, anyways I'm off into tangent land I just, just want to keep talking about <laughs> I, I, what, I, what I really wanted to get to is that we didn't even bring up depth you know one of the correlations most strongly with all of this def- defensive improvement and metrics in the top elite uh, coverage mm-hmm. units they have tremendous depth they can go at least 10 deep and just pulling out d-line starters who you trust who can play a few different looks i yep. feel like that's something that austin despite maybe some of their besides break rate other team defensive stat metrics not quite being there their depth on mm-hmm. defense they can run out a lot of different guys on you they're gonna have that again this year they're returning one of their better starting players as i mentioned last week in jake reinhardt like they will just be formidable i think for their talent level and their ability to simply throw legs at you a lot a lot of athletes down there in the sunshine state florida's the sunshine state the lone star state excuse lone me star. Lone Star State. It's getting late, man. Once it starts being past 8 p.m., man, it's too dark. It's been too dark for too long. Midwinter. I'm Masters eligible, man. It's 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 late. <laughs> yeah. No. Um. You know, this is something we'll definitely be keeping an eye on as the season goes on too. It'll be really interesting to see if those teams that are at the top, like in those break percentages, that are putting formidable defenses out there, converting at high rates, like. It'll be really interesting to see if that correlates for a second year in a row. And I, I, I'm, I'm calling it now. I'm calling my shot. Of the four teams that make championship weekend, three of them will be the top team in their division in break percentage. That's going to be the metric that's going to be the most correlative. And you know what? I'll go a step further. They will be three of the teams will be the top three break percentage teams in the entire league, not All just right. in their division. All right, but it, but if you're wrong, you've got to shave your head. And I know that's gonna be it's gonna be a tough tough thing for you to stick with. Mm. <laughs> I'll sacrifice. I, you know, Daniel shaved the hair last year. If Actually, it, it should be the opposite. It, you gotta grow it out. I want to see you with some locks, some flow. No one wants to see that. I've got this like long stringy hair. In fact, the 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 only picture that exists of me anywhere with like long hair was sophomore year of college when I had no money and didn't want to pay for a haircut, and I actually got a picture with Dickie V when he came to Purdue for the Purdue Duke basketball game. <laughs> and uh, that's floating out there in the, in the internet somewhere. And outside of that, there is like not a picture that exists with me with, with any semblance of long hair. 
That's incredible, man. I'm going to make it my mission to get that picture <laughs> on this show at some point. That that needs to be out there. For if the you future. can find it. All right. All right. That'll, that'll be my mission. That'll be my one piece of actual journalism I do is tracking down <laughs> a photo of you with hair. But no, I think that that's a terrific point, And it's definitely something we will be monitoring going into 20 point, 2024 season. But as we kind of alluded to at the beginning of this show, I don't want to sprawl too much into the ooey-gooey cosmic sphere of what defense means all in one episode. I think it's something that we can continue to nibble at as we go forward. I'm sure we'll have a lot more to talk about it, particularly as hopefully we start getting more and more player signings. I know DC is set to announce their new coach, I believe, tomorrow. Was hoping for that announcement to come earlier this week so that we could talk about it here on the show. But it will be great fodder for next week, obviously. DC will be much intriguing to watch for as they will always battle against sort of their Sisyphean uh, opponent in the New York Empire in the East Division. But also because in the wake of the Daryl Stanley era and his retirement, be interesting to see how they just approach this 2024 season given that their season is going to start on the road against the Salt Lake Shred in Utah for that Super Series game live and free on YouTube. That date is still being finalized, but that will sound like it's going to be the actual like opening poll for the entire season. So that'll oh. be amazing to watch. I'm sure we'll get into what it means next week for their matchup and the new coach once we can share that information with you. But that'll do it for this week's episode of Swing Pass. We will see you in not too long. I'll say goodbye now for Cam and myself. Talk to you soon.